Welcome to episode 82 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, Click 2.0, the photography technique episode. If you've ever wondered how to capture starlight or how to soften a bubbling brook, we'll have some beginner outdoor photography tips that will help you crack the code. Then on the Summit Gear Review, if a full-size tripod and some tent poles got married, we have a pretty good idea of what their kids would look like. On the Backpack Hack of the Week, Josh geeks out and shares an open source software plugin that will turn you into the next Ansel Adams. And we'll wrap up the show with a little philosophy. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. Josh, you are the family photographer. You're the one that is always camera ready. I mean, like you always have your camera ready. Um, And you're the one who's always looking for those opportunities. You know, whether it's people or plants, you're always the one whipping out your camera and capturing that perfect moment or that perfect scene. So I'm really curious, why do you take pictures? Well, it's a funny thing. I, I think years ago, some people took pictures and most everybody else didn't. Or maybe they pulled out their camera every once in a while. And today it's totally different because everyone has a camera in their pocket in their smartphone and they take pictures of everything everywhere. And it has actually caused me to question why I take pictures. And the question comes up because I can go to some beautiful spot, let's say Mount Hood, where we did our first 40 mile trip together. And I can take a picture of Mount Hood from, say, Timberline Lodge and do my best to get that to look good. I could just sit in front of my computer and do a Google image search, and I would get a picture of Mount Hood taken from Timberline Lodge by a professional photographer who probably did it way better than I did. And it's caused me to really question, why do I take pictures? I mean, I could just get them on Google. So there must be a different reason for taking pictures other than just, you know, to get that iconic shot. Yeah, and it's not just to say, oh, well, it's, you know, then I took the picture, so I have the intellectual property rights. I can distribute and publish and share that photo, whereas if I find a photo on the internet, it's someone else's photo with someone else's intellectual property. I I don't think that's it. I think it's more than that. What are you going for in your photography? Like, what do you look for? What's the, I mean, is it more than just capturing a picture? Is it something that you're trying to preserve or... Are you trying to capture a moment? Are you trying to be able to relive a memory later on? Yeah, maybe a little of all of those things. You're trying to stop time? Yeah, maybe. Or be a time traveler? Because that's kind of what photography is. It allows you to go back in time and relive those moments. Right. It's fun to see our own photos pop back up on the screensaver on our computer, and we can kind of relive uh, the Mount Hood hike or... Uh, the Rogue River or the Redwoods or, you know, wherever else we've been. It it brings back the memories of our experience there. And it brings it back in a way that a copy of a professional photographer's photo from the internet would not do. Yeah, it's a little more raw. It's imperfect. Yeah, and that's part of the beauty of it, isn't it? I, I really agree. Yeah. When we go on our annual fall backpacking trips, we're always with a group of, a you know, 
six to ten people, and several of the guys in the group are into photography, and, and so there's quite a few of us all taking pictures. And that brings up the same question. If there's three or four other guys on the trip who have better cameras than I do and may be more experienced than I am when it comes to photography, then again, why am I bringing my camera and taking my pictures on the trip if I could just look at the great pictures that they took? But you know what's fun is when we get together after the trip and everyone brings their photos that they took. Yeah, well, we get to see what they saw through their lens. So yeah, you might get several pictures of a similar scene, but they're with the eyes of the person who took the picture. So it's always a little bit different. Right. So it's so fun to see each other's pictures because we get a sense of living in each other's eyes. And when you look at other people's pictures, you get a sense of what they felt was important in that moment. And when you see yourself in other people's photographs, especially when it's a candid shot, when you don't even know that the shot was being taken, it brings you back to that moment and you you recognize that the person taking the picture saw that as a, a special moment or something that deserved to be captured. Yeah, so it's so fun to see a trip through the lens of various individuals who were on that trip, to see the trip the way they saw it. And everyone brings out something a little different from that same trip. Photography is a very creative act, uh, similar to songwriting or novel writing or poetry. And I often reflect on a quote by Robert Frost when I'm in creative mode. No tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And so in these moments where you're photographing, you have to feel something. And then that's what you're trying to capture in your picture. And hopefully that's what's conveyed to the person who's viewing your picture. So Josh, you talked about capturing, you know, that iconic picture of Mount Hood that everyone tries to take. But I really enjoy seeing pictures of moments that were captured. You know, like two people sitting in the grass talking, just those really beautiful, simple moments that make you feel something as a photographer and that cause you to take that picture. And even if you are on a trip with a whole bunch of photographers and they're all taking pictures, I think that photography ends up being part of the collective narrative, you know, the story of that trip. And I think that's equally important. And every photographer contributes a different perspective or a different eye to that collective narrative. And so with that in mind, today's episode is another episode focused on photography. In episode 77, we focused on photography gear. And in today's episode, we will have some gear stuff, but we're going to focus a little more on technique, what you can do regardless of the gear that you may already have. So for today's top five list, we'll be doing the top five photography technique questions. And the number one question is, what beginner mistakes can I avoid? So if you could boil it down to one thing, what would that be, Josh? One thing. One thing. If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be one thing. Simplify. Here's a quote by William Albert Allard. And what he said was, what's really important is to simplify. The work of most photographers would be improved immensely if they could do one thing. Get rid of the extraneous. If you strive for simplicity, you are more likely to reach the viewer. And think about that in photographs that you have looked at. 
the photographer has made an attempt to deliver one message to you through that photograph. Not 10 or 100 messages, but one. And the photographer tries to capture a scene where everything contributes to that one message. And if it doesn't, it's not in the scene. I, don't know, I, I like shots of flowers where it's, it's a real close-up on the flower. It's, it's closer than I would usually get when I'm just walking around. And so I can see all this detail in the flower. And then everything behind the flower is just blurred out. So I'm not distracted by the background. And I just focus on that one thing, that just the middle of that flower. What's the, uh, the technique behind simplifying and focusing on that one thing, especially when you're doing an up-close, you know, like a flower shot? Yeah, so for a close-up, the, the trick is to have a very open aperture, uh, which would be a small aperture number, like 2, for example. It's a small number. It represents a very wide-open aperture. Uh, the aperture is the diameter of the kind of that, that apex through which the light comes through your lens. So it's the smallest opening as the light comes through the lens and then spreads back out to hit the sensor. And what happens is uh, the object that you focus on is in focus, and everything in front of or behind the object gets blurred out. It becomes out of focus. And that's desirable if you're doing something like a flower, because you want just the flower to be in focus, and then the rest can go out of focus. And that brings the, the visual focus of the photograph to the one thing. Okay, and then what about larger shots when you're hiking down the trail and you don't really want to get that one little flower? You want to get the feel of what's happening. You want to capture, you know, either a conversation between two people or the glow of the tent or some kind of large shot. It all comes down to getting the extra stuff out of the shot. Physically, like moving things, or by where you stand? Could be a little of both, but it usually it's, it's by how you frame that shot. Uh, where you choose to look with your camera. For example, it, it may be really cool to get a shot of kind of the side of a cliff with, uh, with a trail on it. And if I can put one person backpacking on that trail, then that one small focal point in this large landscape photo, just that one thing brings everything into perspective. Anyone looking at the picture can see how massive the cliff is and how long the trail is because they have that one thing there, that one small backpacker that kind of draws their eye and allows them to focus. Well, I know a, a beginner mistake that I've experienced or have, I've had trouble with is knowing when to use the flash. Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, most point-and-shoot cameras are very... Um, Flash-happy? Yes, like, flash happy. <laughs> yes. Exactly. They're, they're very um, eager to pop up their flash. Yes, I've noticed that. And then it kind of blows out all the lighting. There's so much technique that can go into lighting, and the professionals have all kinds of gear they can use so that they can control their flashes and control where the lighting comes from and how much of it, how diffuse and everything else. Most of us beginners just don't have either the equipment or the expertise. And so the simple advice would be try to use natural lighting as much as you can. Well, when we went on our trip to the Salmon River, I took a picture of you and the flash went off and you were just whitewashed. And so um, on the next shot that I tried, I put my finger over the flash and it diffused it and it gave enough light for the picture. So I don't know if that's a 
Heather hack or if other people have tried that, but it seemed to work for that shot. That's a good hack. Yeah. Or you can put a piece of fabric over your flash. Just know that a full-on flash from a point-and-shoot camera is often going to just light up the subject in a very unnatural way. So you got to be aware of it and, and kind of tone it down. On the other hand, having your flash go off on a subject that's 30 feet away is completely useless. <laughs> and I guess one last beginner mistake that we can all avoid is getting too close to the buffalo. Don't get too close to the buffalo. No selfies. Yeah, Selfie no, no the... selfies with the buffalo. No, none of those. <laughs> <laughs> the number two photography technique question is, how do you get water to look soft? You know, that kind of whoosh, kind of that, how it looks like it's just so smooth and bubbly. I got a couple pictures on our Rogue River trip uh, this spring uh, where people asked, oh, so how did you do that? Uh, one was a picture of Whiskey Creek and the other was a little, you know, just a small creek, a little waterfall along the trail. And the answer was a slow shutter speed. So if you can set the shutter speed to about a half second, then the water all blurs out because the water's moving and nothing else is moving. So that's how you get that soft water effect. So a couple things with that. One, the water is usually one of the bright spots in the photo because it's as it splashes down, it reflects light. And when your camera is trying to figure out how to expose the photo, it's taking a quick momentary look at how much light is being reflected. And so there's some light being reflected from the water. But you got to remember that that light adds up in the case of water. So if you're going to do a half second exposure, all the little splashes of water, each one of which takes just a hundredth of a second, you're going to get a bunch of those little momentary splashes of water all compressed into that half second exposure. And so all that light adds up over the half second. So it's also a good idea to try to set the exposure compensation downward to try to underexpose your photo a little bit. Otherwise, the water is going to wash out. It's just going to be white. So keep that in mind. And then the other thing is, what if you have a camera where you can't set the shutter speed? Because that's a, kind of a manual option. What you can try to do is if you can set the ISO on your camera, the ISO is the sensitivity rating. If you can set a low ISO, then even though you can't control your aperture and your shutter speed, in a dark enough setting, you may be able to get your camera to automatically pick a long shutter speed because you've forced it to have low sensitivity to light. So it's going to have to keep the shutter open long enough to get that shot. So you can try it, you know, even with a smartphone or, um, or typical point and shoot, you just need a dark enough setting in order to sort of force it to do that. Oh, we haven't even done the backpack hack of the week yet, and I feel like we've already filled up on hacks for the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then the number three photography technique question is, how do you get stars at night? Like, it seems like when you take a shot and you see all these beautiful stars, and especially the moon, you take the picture and it doesn't end up the way that you saw it with your eyes. Yeah. Okay, let's start with the moon because everyone can get a moon shot. The trick with the moon is when you just push the button with your camera, your camera is trying to expose for all that darkness. And so it completely blows out the moon. And the picture that you get is basically black and white. The sky is black and the moon is not only white, but it has this white halo around it because it's just way overexposed. And so you've got this photo that's completely boring. Now, if you think about it, when you look at the moon, what do you see on the moon? What the happy face of that guy. Yeah, you see all that texture because with your eyes, 
you are adjusting your exposure, you know, of, of your view of the moon so that the moon is not white. It's sort of medium and it has whiter and darker areas on it. So with a, a basic camera, dial the exposure compensation way down as far as you can go probably. Or if you have manual controls, you can just manually expose way underexpose. The sky is already black. It'll still be black. But the moon will start to show some detail. It won't just be this washed out white thing. So anyone can do that. The answer with stars really is that you have to have a camera that's capable of doing them. I can get it with our Sony RX100, and I couldn't get it with our Nikon Coolpix S9700. The Nikon had manual controls, so I was able to go up to an 8-second shutter speed, but I couldn't get the sensitivity high enough. It has a small sensor. The Sony RX100, which we reviewed in the Photography Gear episode, number 77, has a larger sensor, so it's able to collect more light. Combine that with the manual controls, and it's pushing it for that camera. It's still a point-and-shoot camera. It's small. But if I set it to a 30-second shutter speed, maybe a 15-second shutter speed with the right ISO, um, and with the aperture wide open, letting in as much light as I can, I can get a shot of stars. Keep in mind that in 30 seconds, the Earth will have rotated enough. They won't be dots. They'll be little short lines in your photo. <laughs> it's just amazing how quickly the Earth rotates. We don't think about it. I think it's important to note in both of these uh, tips, how to get stars and um, how to get water to look soft, that a tripod or a stable camera is really necessary. It's virtually impossible to hold a camera still enough for that long. I mean, even half a second, your body is moving enough that you'll get a blurry shot. And so a, a tripod or setting your camera down on something stable is critical for getting both of these kinds of shots. Absolutely. So the number four photography technique question is, where does the magic happen? Is it on the camera or on the computer? So really I'm asking, can I compensate for poor photography skills by using photo editing software? And the answer is yes and no. There are some things you can do and others that you can't. A couple things you can do, no matter what camera you have, you can use photo editing software to crop your photo. Now, why is cropping important? Well, go back to tip number one, simplify. Go to the one thing. So you might have taken a picture out there on the trail and it was pretty good and you were focused on that one thing when you took the picture but you didn't notice that there were all these other things in the picture. Now you get home, you look at the photo, and you're like, well, that's good. I got that one thing, but I also got all these other things that I didn't even notice were in the picture. Well, it's really simple on your computer to go ahead and crop that photo, or even on your smartphone, crop the photo to get the extra stuff out of it so that the one thing that you wanted the focus on is what remains. You can also compensate for things like white balance. So if the whole picture looks a little reddish or greenish or bluish, uh, your photo editing software can fix that real quick. It's just a quick, you know, one-click fix. And you can also play around with brightness and contrast. If uh, the photo's a little too dark or a little too bright, you can play with that to some extent. But if you've got a part of the photo that was completely washed out white or completely black, you can't, I mean, the detail's not there. It was lost when you took the original photo. You're never getting that detail back, no matter how hard you try. And I'd say the other big thing you really can't fix very well on a computer is blurry. So if you had a shaky camera when you were taking the picture and everything comes out a little blurry, I have not found a way to compensate for that. And then the number five photography technique question 
is how do I get my pictures to look like what I saw? Or why don't my pictures look like Ansel Adams' pictures? Like you see this great scene, you take a picture, and something about it just doesn't ring your bell the way it did when you saw it with your eyes. And the answer is luck. Ansel Adams himself said, Sometimes I do get to places just when God's ready to have someone click the shutter. Of course, that's only part of the answer. Ansel Adams was more than just a lucky guy. (laughs) But he did go out enough to ensure that he was there when the conditions were just right. I think that's a really great point, that he didn't just go out to this location, take a few shots, and then go back inside. He spent a lot of time outside. So take one of his shots, and that may represent thousands of photographs of similar shots that he took that exact same day or, you know, over the course of weeks. We just don't know. We just see that one shot and we're like, wow, that's amazing. Nailed it. He nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't just say, I'm going to take a picture of the Snake River today and drive over to the Snake River and snap a shot with his camera. Got it. Because you look at that picture and the way the clouds are coming over the mountains and the way the sun is reflecting off the surface of the river, you know that he had to get some pretty optimal timing on that photo in order to get it. Yeah. And timing means time spent. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes you're lucky and it means just being there at the moment that it happened. Uh, But a lot of the time, timing means spending a lot of time there so that that moment happens while you're there. What a great metaphor for life. Hmm. Everything is a great metaphor for life. (laughs) (laughs) But he did have some technical tricks. Number one, he used a large format camera, so he used very large film. And that's where the detail and the sharpness comes from. Well, that's part of where it comes from. Of course, probably none of us are running around with large format film cameras. (laughs) But if we have a large sensor in our camera, we're going to pick up more detail, more sharpness. And that's not just a megapixels thing, but we talked about that in episode 77. He also used very small apertures, so a very small opening through the lens. What that does is it brings everything in the scene into focus. So something a few feet from the camera is sharp in focus, and the mountains way in the distance are sharp in focus. So that's really good for landscape photos. And then after he took the picture, when he went into the dark room to process his photos, he pulled out a few other tricks. And these, you'll see in photo editing software, you'll see dodge and burn. And these are modeled after what people used to do in developing film. So burning will darken an area of the photo and dodging will lighten it up. So Ansel Adams took his photographs in such a way that he made sure, I mean, he just got the exposure as perfect as he could when he took the shot so that he had no area of the picture that was too white or too black. And then when he got into the dark room, he would dodge and burn to lighten up the darker areas of the photo and bring out some detail, like the dark trees on a hillside. And he would darken some of the lighter areas of the photo, again, to bring them back to where you could see more detail, like the bright clouds in the sky. And those would darken up a little bit. So that was part of his trick, too, just getting that perfect range from dark to light. And in today's Backpack Hack, we'll share a little trick for fixing the too light and too dark problem. But Ansel Adams said, landscape photography is the supreme test of the photographer and often the supreme disappointment. So it took a lot of work, even for him. Okay, so if we're left with this supreme disappointment, 
then what would you say to the person who goes out on a backpacking trip and takes all these pictures and comes home and says, wow, this is nothing like what I remember. It doesn't even begin to capture the the beauty or the majesty or the depth or the color range. Or I mean, it just doesn't capture what I remember in my mind. This happens to me all the time. And I just have to remind myself that when I was there, I was experiencing the entire scene with all of my senses. And even with just my eyes, I was seeing this vast, you know, vista. I could turn in any direction and see something beautiful out there. And then I expect all of that to end up in a photograph, you know, where it's just one little piece of that scene. And you can never truly capture that with the camera. Also, our eyes are amazing. When you look up at the sky that's bright, your pupil instantly becomes smaller. That's the aperture of your eye getting smaller. And when you look at a darker area like the forest, your eye instantly opens your pupil, a large aperture. And your eyes are doing that instantaneously as you look around at different areas of the scene. And so you get this perfect exposure of every area of the scene as you look at it. And then you expect your camera to perfectly expose the entire scene all from that one shot. And that's pretty tall order. And cameras just don't have the dynamic range, is what it's called, that our eyes have. The ability to not wash out the brights and to not lose all the detail in the darks. So in some ways, that can be compensated for somewhat by using software editing. In other ways, we just need to expect to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, you can use uh, high dynamic range photography, HDR. You might see that even on some smartphones. And uh, the way it works is they take multiple shots quickly in a row, and they overexpose one, they underexpose another, and they get a perfect or a, a mid-range exposure on another. And then they stitch the three shots together. So the areas that were too bright, they can pull that data from the underexposed shot. And the areas that were too dark, they can pull the detail from the overexposed shot and put it all together into one perfect shot. Even if you don't have HDR capability in your camera, we will share in our backpack hack today, I guess a poor man's method <laughs> to, uh, to do the, the same kind of thing. Sounds great. For today's Summit Gear review, we will be reviewing the ZipShot Mini Tripod. This is a full-sized, standard-sized tripod. It's not one of those little mini ones, even though it's called a mini tripod. It's just really lightweight. The cool thing about the structure of the ZipShot Mini Tripod is that the legs of the tripod are like tent poles, and they even have the shock cord running through them. And so it's really fun when you just unhook a couple straps that, that keep it bundled up and then you just hold the tripod, and the legs just fall into place. Like even, Snap, snap, snap. Yeah, better than a tent pole. It's just... just yeah, it's really cool. Just unhook a couple of uh, holding straps, and click, click, click. Your tripod is all set up. So the ZipShot Mini Tripod has strong aluminum legs, which, as we said, are similar to tent poles. The feet on the tripod are kind of grippy, and so that provides for extra stability when you're setting up your camera. And then the camera mount on the top is this sort of ball connector with a clamp on it. And so you can rotate the ball in any direction and then just tighten down the clamp. In terms of utility, the ZipShot does not have an adjustable height. So you set it up and that's the height you've got. And with the ball style connector at the top, it means you can get your camera into almost any angle that you'd want. 
However, ball-style joints kind of have a limit on how much weight they can handle. So with a larger camera, if you tilt it off to the side too much, then you're going to have too much weight pulling on one side, and, and you're going to have trouble keeping that ball joint secure. So really, it's probably maybe a two-pound camera limit. This tripod is easy to carry, and it sets up faster than any other full-size tripod that we've ever used. Really, it's just you shake it, and it assembles completely. And to collapse the tripod, you just pull it apart like you would tent poles and fold it up, and then it has two red shock cords that wrap around the tripod and secure it. As far as mass goes, the Zipshot Mini tripod weighs 9 ounces, and then when it's collapsed, it's only 9 inches long and about 2 inches in diameter when collapsed. When it's fully extended, it stands 28 inches tall. So it's a little bit on the small side, perhaps, for a standard tripod. The Zipshot Mini costs $49.95. As far as maintenance goes, you'll just want to keep this clean because it has the same technology as tent poles, and you know what happens when tent poles get kind of dusty and dirty. It's Yeah, you get the gritty stuff in there, and yeah. then they just don't... Yeah, it just feels bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've taken the Zipshot Mini on a lot of our trips and used it quite a bit with our point-and-shoot cameras. Uh, but we felt like, in addition to our trial of the tripod, it was really important to get an SLR camera on it and see how it performs. And so we handed it off to our friend Bryce, and he took it with him on our Redwoods trip last fall and really put it through its paces with his DSLR cameras. So Bryce tried out the tripod with a couple different Canon cameras, a Canon 60D and a Canon 60. He compared it with uh, the tripod that had been his go-to tripod up till then, which was a kind of a knockoff brand of a gorilla pod. They stand about nine inches tall and have these flexible legs. You can wrap them around trees and, and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, it's not as tall as the zip shot. And he did a rigidity test on the tripod. That means you set up the camera on the tripod, and then you kind of give it a little tap on the side of the camera to make it bounce around. And then you time it and see how long it takes before it stops shaking. And so he did that with his lightest camera with his lightest lens. So it was just over two pounds. And the zip shot took about two and a half seconds to stabilize it after he tapped the side of the camera. On his Gorillapod knockoff, it took about five seconds to stabilize. And he always feels nervous uh, walking away from his FlexPod with the camera mounted on it because he feels nervous about the stability that it may fall over while he's not looking. And he said he felt a lot safer walking away from the zip shot, that it wasn't going to go anywhere. The other thing he tested that's really important was the holding capacity of the zip shot. And so if he had a camera plus lens that added up to about two pounds, everything was good. When he went up to two and a half pounds, it was really getting to the limits of what the zip shot could handle, especially that ball joint at the top. He just couldn't clamp it down tight enough to keep it stable. And as he got up close to three pounds, it, it just couldn't handle it. So you really got to keep your camera at the two, maybe two and a half pound mark or below. Of course, with a point and shoot camera, this is not a problem. I mean, our camera is like half a pound, so we never have an issue. To sum up his review, he said as he took this tripod into the redwoods where it was dark forest a lot of the time, he found himself taking a lot more pictures because he had this tripod because it was so quick to set up. So he could stop anywhere and in a moment he could have his camera ready to take a shot. So that's the Zipshot Mini. We'll have uh, all the details in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 082. 
since we did our first photography episode a month ago, we've had a couple comments come in over Facebook and Twitter about other options. One is called the stick pick, and it turns your trekking pole into a selfie stick or a monopod. So you can check that out. And the other one is called trail picks. It's like it's just the top of a tripod without the legs, and then your trekking poles become the legs. Of course, you usually only have two trekking poles, so you can either buy a third leg or use a tent pole or a stick or something. So it becomes kind of a make-your-own tripod. Oh, cool. For today's backpack hack of the week, we are going to geek out a little bit. I'm going to turn it over to Josh for that part, and he's going to explain tone mapping. So when we were talking about why Ansel Adams' photographs look so much more amazing than our own photographs, uh, I talked a little bit about dynamic range, where our eyes are capable of seeing a wider range of darkness to lightness than what a camera can see. And in fact, digital cameras, at least up until recently, have a narrower dynamic range than color film, which has a narrower dynamic range than black and white film. And Ansel Adams used black and white film, had a wider dynamic range, still not as wide of a dynamic range as our eyes have. And so he would play around with dodging and burning and, and other techniques to try to get as much dynamic range as he could out of his photographs. And I mentioned that uh, high dynamic range or HDR photography is kind of the modern answer to that, where your camera takes multiple pictures and then it merges them together into one photo that gets both the brights and the darks all within the dynamic range of the, the final photo. Well, if you don't have HDR, or even if you have that setting on your camera but you didn't use it when you took a picture, you can use something called tone mapping to kind of compensate for that after the fact when you're working on the photo on your computer. Tone mapping is just a quick kind of automatic correction that your photo editing software can do that will brighten up the dark spots a little bit, and it's going to bring down the brightness of the brightest spots in the photo. But the reason it's going to do that is so that it can increase what's called local contrast. So you've got this dark area that's just a, a forest, maybe. And tone mapping is going to bring out the lighter parts of that dark area a little more. So you're increasing the contrast in that dark area. And then you've got a lighter area like the clouds. Tone mapping is going to darken the darker spots in that light area. So that again is increasing the contrast in the clouds. So by doing that, you get more contrast throughout the photo and you get more of that detail coming out so you can see it with your eyes. So you can look for a tone mapping feature in your photo editing software. You can probably uh, just download a standalone program that'll do tone mapping. Uh, I use GIMP, which is an open source photo editor. And so I've downloaded a plugin for GIMP. And the plugin is simply called Tone Mapping. And we'll put a link to it in today's show notes. So you can install that plugin. It just adds a menu item in the GIMP software. Really, when you run it, it has three options. It's really simple to use. And you can pretty much just go with the defaults and press OK. And it will apply that tone mapping to your photo. And we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom today from our good friend on the trail, Amit Kalantri. He said, a photograph shouldn't be just a picture. It should be a philosophy. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then try one of the techniques from today's episode. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles.
you know that game Gosh. they played at the improv night? Like 185 photographers walk into a bar. Right. <laughs> the bartender says, sorry, we don't serve your kind here. The 185 photographers said... Well, you better serve us or this bar is going to get shuttered. 185 photographers oh, walk wait, into... wait, 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 wait. 185 photographers <laughs> walk into a bar. The bartender says, sorry, we don't serve your kind here. So the 185 photographers say... If you kick us out now, we'll die of exposure. Oh. <laughs> 185 photographers walk into a bar. The bartender says, sorry, we don't serve your kind here. The 185 photographers say, cheese. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. It's just something you say when you're taking pictures. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 185 photographers walk into a bar. The bartender says, sorry, we don't serve your kind here. The 185 photographers say, well, we'll just get out of Dodge and burn. <laughs>